Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Guests on this show always have enthusiasm that leads them to do deep research on their topics. Some guests also have professional academic training that helps them to better distinguish the nature of the sources they consult. Only rarely, however, do we get to hear from someone who combines enthusiasm for the topic, professional training, and the added dimension of a modern professional military perspective. We do tonight, however, as we talk with Christian B. Keller, the Eisenhower Chair of National Security and Professor of History at the U.S. Army War College. We'll talk about his most recent book, The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina where the Pirates are taking on number 21-ranked Houston tonight in men's basketball. But I'm not at the arena. I'm here with you talking about Civil War history and not representing the university or its basketball team or anybody else. Likewise, my guest will not speak for the U.S. Army War College or anybody but himself, the way we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. Last night I got to talk Civil War, uh, not with you, but with the Civil War Roundtable in Kinston, North Carolina, and it was a very pleasurable experience. They had an interesting group of people who asked a lot of really uh, provocative and interesting questions. We met at the Queen Street Deli, which I highly recommend if you're in the area, uh, stop in for, for some excellent sandwiches and 
homemade baked goods. And while you're there, that's on like the Kinston uh, Chamber of Commerce now, there's the museum with the remains of the CSS Noose, the ironclad that was built uh, but never really successfully launched on the Noose River and uh, blown up at the end of the war. But they have the remains of that in a museum. There's also a replica that someone built, a big life-size replica of the ship uh, just a block away. And then uh, a few short blocks from there, you can also see the visitor center for the county, which includes information on the Battle of Wise Fork and uh, other military events that happen in the area. It's definitely worth a visit if you're if you're in eastern North Carolina, as is New Bern, where I'm taking my students in History 3225 Civil War Sectionalism Civil War class in a few weeks to see the, the very nicely preserved chunk of the New Bern battlefield from 1862. I will say it's uh, January of 2020. We're still in the first month of the new semester here at East Carolina University. And the students in History 3225, some of them uh, appear to be outstanding and have asked great questions in class and offered interesting observations. Uh, some do not yet seem to have gotten the message that you need to do the reading before class, that you can't have a discussion of, say, Michael Holt, as we're going to do in a few weeks, if you haven't read Michael Holt's book. So I'm, I'm looking at maybe changing the tactics, uh, maybe no more Mr. Nice Guy, we'll just have to have a quiz or something to spur the recalcitrants on, the, the more enthusiastic ones. If, if any of you are listening, uh, uh, students, right now, you're probably the ones who are doing the reading too, so, so you're okay. Uh, but, but nudge your neighbors, tell them, hey, got to read the book, that's why we're there. I had an interesting experience related to that of getting an email yesterday from a student who took that same class the first time I taught it at ECU in 2004, so 15, 16 years ago now, uh, and uh, heard from another alum from the same class just a month or so ago, uh, a frequent listener to the show who uh, sends an annual greeting and support, which is always gratefully received. It's, it's good to hear from alums who are doing well in their lives and who remember a class they took. And I find that I remember both of those students because they were in the first class. And I can recall my mother once telling me, uh, she was a teacher for many years, that you teach for decades and the students all kind of blend together. But you never forget your first class. Uh, students from that one still can pop into your mind. And Sure enough, that, that is the case. Other things that you will never forget, uh, not teaching but learning, are going to battlefields. And for that, I urge you to consider joining us this May or this October, uh, touring Civil War battlefields with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I'll be leading the uh, This Hallowed Ground tour for them, uh, first in May and then again in October. Very much worth your while. Check out also the Gettysburg uh, College website for their Civil War Institute in June of 2020. And if you let them know you're a Civil War Talk Radio listener, they will give you a discount uh, on that seminar, which is just a, a wonderful week in Gettysburg and the surrounding area. 
So lots coming up, lots to do, lots to listen to on the show. A uh, quick rundown of the upcoming shows, and we'll get to our guest next week. It will be the Three-Cornered War, the Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. The author of the book is Megan Kate Nelson. I've got an advanced, uncorrected proof here, not for sale, it says on the cover. Uh, won't be on sale till February 11th, but I've got an advanced copy, and we'll be talking with Dr. Nelson uh, next week, February 5th. After that, uh, February 12th, Lincoln's birthday. We'll do something for Lincoln's birthday. Uh, maybe a guest. Maybe I'll just uh, chat with you about Lincoln for an hour. Uh, we'll have to see. The day before, February 11th, I will be talking with uh, Tom Kearney on WPTF radio. If you're anywhere in the eastern half of the country, you can probably get the it's a powerful AM station at night, uh, 9 p.m., February 11th. We don't take calls here on Civil War Talk Radio. We're not really talk or radio. But uh, Tom does take calls. So if you want to actually call up and ask me a, a question or just rant uh, or whatever people do on Real Talk Radio, uh, feel free to call him and, and talk with me February 11th, 9 to 10 p.m. Uh, more shows in February, William Griffing and his uh, website where he preserves Civil War letters, Thomas Brown on the 26th talking about Civil War monuments, Gary Morgan, Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's most notorious prison camp on March 4th, and then it'll be time for spring break, and we'll tell you about more shows later. Stay up to date, impedimentsofwar.org is the website, Mark Gaffney runs it. Uh, and feel free to donate money as always. It doesn't help your taxes, but it does help me. Our guest tonight has been on the show before. I thought it was three or four years ago, and when I looked it up, I was shocked to learn that it was 10 years ago that we talked about Chancellorsville and the Germans with Christian B. Keller. Uh, he returns now with a new book called The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. Uh, Chris, are you there? I am, Jerry. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. It seemed like yesterday. <laughs> doesn't It doesn't seem like 10 years. I, I don't, hope it doesn't for you. It really doesn't for me. Um, nope, nope. Last time we talked, you were teaching... Uh, professional military officers who are preparing for brigade-level staff assignments. I think you were at, at Leavenworth, uh, and I was uh, at a. Uh, I was at one of the uh, the branch campuses of Fort Leavenworth, uh, which was at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And, that's right. Uh, in, indeed, we at that time I was teaching uh, the field grade officers, uh, primarily majors and some advanced captains, and. Uh, uh, I left there in 2011 and uh, was uh, promoted, as it were. Um, I had to apply for the job and go mm -hmm. through the admission, all the, the process. But uh, I came up to the Army War College, which is actually in my old hometown, hometown of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Mm. And uh, I've, been, I've been up here ever since. So uh, what's the nature of the responsibilities there? Who are you teaching nowadays? Well, now I teach lieutenant colonels and colonels, uh, occasionally a brigadier general from one of our uh, allied uh, countries abroad. We do have international students who come in, and they represent about 25% of our student body now. 
the majority of the students are U.S. Army uh, colonels and lieutenant colonels. We do have some active uh, or some reserve component uh, individuals. And then we have sister service students also that uh, come in from the Marines and the Navy and the Air Force. And uh, also some uh, interagency folks that uh, come in from uh, other government, federal, other federal agencies in the government, and they are assigned to the classes as well. So it's quite a hodgepodge of students, but they're all senior level leaders who are on their way to places like the Joint Staff down uh, in the Pentagon or uh, the NSC staff in the White House or uh, directly on uh, the immediate staff of any of the combatant commanders around the world. Uh, so we're trying to get them out of the stage that I left the map when I taught at Fort Belvoir, uh, which is kind of middle operational level of war. And we're trying to bring them up to the strategic level, Jerry. How... Uh... How How is it received when you're trying to teach them about this? Do you uh, and I think I asked a similar question ten, ten years ago where you know how does a relatively junior academic talk to these professional military people and now uh, a relatively senior academic, uh, but you're talking to more senior officers and 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 we're also in an environment where there are people in the chain of command who cast doubt on any kind of expertise at all. Uh, how, how, so how are you received? It's it's still similar to what it was when I taught at Fort Belvoir. Um, I'm I'm regarded as are the other civilian professors as, as subject matter experts, Jerry. So the students do not question our expertise uh, if we come in with uh, the pedigreed initials after our names or before our names, uh-huh. as the case may be. Uh, you also have to prove your competence in the classroom, and the big the the big test on that is if you can make the material matter to them and immediately applicable. So when I teach theory, for instance, or I teach military history, which I get to do in both the core courses and my electives, uh, I try to give them real-world examples of how knowing this theory or this history actually might help them become better leaders down the road. So if you can do that and you can establish that uh, early on in in the teaching year, uh, you'll have your seminar uh, pretty well uh, situated. So um, it's really not that dissimilar from uh, Fort Belvoir and Command and General Staff College level uh, of teaching in the pedagogical technique. Uh, I'm teaching my peers now, so, uh, you know, there's no more of this, well, you know, I'm teaching folks who are five or ten years older than I am. That's thankfully a thing of the past. Now, the uh, clearly there's a strong pedagogical element in this book, uh, the great partnership uh, about Lee and Jackson. Uh, indeed, you have an appendix where you, you boil it down to, uh, I won't call it lessons learned, but, but you, you talk about what we can learn today from Lee and Jackson. Did this originate in, in a course you were teaching? It did not. Uh, that's a great question. And... The the short answer to it, Jerry, is that I have been incubating this idea since I was in graduate school. Um, When I was on a a staff ride with one of my graduate professors, and I asked innocently the question that I think most historians have asked at some point in their careers, if they've studied the war in any depth or have been to Gettysburg a few times, and it's the question uh, about what Jackson would have done on the night of July 1st. And I got a somewhat facetious answer uh, to the extent of, well, he would have been rather smelly. Um, 
if he had actually been at Gettysburg, because he would have been a putrid corpse. And I found that somewhat unsatisfying. And I, I said, well, there's got to be more to it than just a snide remark. Uh, what did his death actually mean? So I started thinking about it all those years ago uh, when I was in graduate school. And I, I knew I couldn't write on that for my dissertation. And as you know, I wrote on the Germans in the Civil War and got a couple books out on that earlier. And as I started teaching for the Army, the idea grew in my head. I started thinking more and conceptualizing more about it, even when I was at Fort Belvoir. Um, the real heavy lifting got done uh, about seven, yeah, six to seven years ago was when the heavy research was done, um, six, seven, five years ago. And then I started writing it after that. So it's been in, uh, it's been in my head a while. Now, the uh, how do I put it? the The elephant in the room uh, is, is maybe the way to start. So let me pose this question, and then we'll take a break and, and ask you to answer it after the break. Um, the question is: We're living in an era today when uh, the city of New Orleans has removed its monument to Robert E. Lee, monuments to the Confederacy, and Lee and Jackson in particular are perceived as uh, symbols of lost cause thinking that are not really appropriate to 21st century society. At this moment, uh, to come out with a book with a color painting of a romanticized view of the meeting of Lee and Jackson, uh, and, and there's the title, The Great Partnership, uh, what it it looks like uh, swimming very much against the the historiographical and and uh, political tide. So let's take a break first and come back and ask that question uh, of our guest Christian B. Keller, author of The Great Partnership: Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Christian B. Keller, author of The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. The question we ended first segment with is, why a book on this topic, Lee and Jackson, uh, at a time when the Confederacy is not in fashion? Well, Jerry, I'll, I'll start by answering uh, the question in a rather uh, mundane way, which is I started thinking about it and researching this topic before all the uh, all the hubbub arose um, of late uh, about the Lee and Jackson statues and the shooting in Charleston uh, that preceded those, um, which really started the whole process in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in recent years. There's always been objection uh, to uh, the flag and to uh, certain symbology, and that's that goes back a long time, as many authors have recognized. But mm-hmm. it, I started working on this book, this book before the the modern movements uh, that we've seen in the last four to five years particularly before they really started to uh, to spread. I was not going to stop working on my project uh, because of that. Um, like most scholars, we decide what, what we want to write about. We think hard about it. And we just hope that something doesn't come in the way and interfere with the publication of our books or uh, the expression of our, of our intellectual ideas. And I saw what was happening, and I decided to just continue onward and the big reason I did that was mainly because what I was writing about was not political, but military, and also mm-hmm. theoretical. And I was focusing on why and how the relationship between these two men was so critical militarily for the fate of the Confederacy, and what it was about that relationship that made it so unique and made it uh, very important for the chances of Confederate national survival. So the, the the subject of the book and the subtopics within it, uh, my four major theses in it, uh, really have nothing to do with the modern political furor over uh, the monuments and and over the flag and 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 all this other business that's been going on that we're all very well aware of and and we should be concerned about. Um, but uh, I'm I'm looking at other questions. Well, I, I, looking at the back of the book. You know, one typically looks at the blurbs on the back. You don't have to read the blurbs ever because they're always positive, but you see who wrote them. 
and Gary Gallagher, Peter Carmichael, Jeffrey Wirt, Peter Cousins. Listeners to the show will recognize all four of those names uh, as people who have widely varying views on Civil War and its interpretation, but all extremely well-known uh, authors and scholars. So it becomes clear just from glancing at that that this is not going to be uh, anything but serious scholarship. Uh, now, you, you point out, though, that one of the handicaps to writing about this topic is that the lost cause, I'll use the word, infects a lot of the sources about Lee and Jackson. How do you it's deal with right. that? I like your word choice there, Jerry. It, it, it does. And I, I handle that in the introduction uh, mm-hmm. and then continue throughout the chapters. Uh, my, my main methodology on this uh, as I explained in the introduction, was caution, first of all, when looking at any source material written by former Confederates after the war, uh, and then what I call historical triangulation, or something similar to uh, triangulation, whereby uh, if one source that was written, say, in the 1880s or 90s says it, I'm not necessarily going to buy it at face value. I'm going to check it against other sources, And I'm going to stick most of all to wartime sources. And readers will go through the book and they'll see that I spent as much uh, effort as possible to remain uh, with the wartime sources themselves and limit the sources that that were created after the war. Now, obviously, as the the listenership knows, any topic like uh, a book on Lee or Jackson or particularly both will necessarily have to dip into some of those uh, those sources that were written by former Confederates. Uh, but again, if you're evaluating those, you have to do so with careful judgment. And I'm not so familiar with the secondary literature, early and new, and uh, was familiar with just about everything that the, the, the two men wrote during the war to each other and about each other. I was able to make, I thought, some pretty good judgment calls on the later sources, the secondary sources written uh, after the war by particularly staff members uh, of Lee and Jackson, who obviously uh, did have agendas. And so you have to know that from the beginning, that that, uh, many of these these accounts after the war by men like Jedediah Hotchkiss or... uh, uh, Taylor or, or uh, you know, any of these staff officers for both men, they, they are definitely trying to make their, their former general uh, appear in a good light. That said, there's a lot more of value in some of these sources that have just been summarily dismissed, Jerry, as mm-hmm. overwrought with lost cause uh, difficulty. Um, I found through my careful triangulation method that a lot of the things that were said, not all, certainly not all, but there, there was a lot more in some of these post-war sources than, than people have recently been led to believe, a lot more truth. And when that can be corroborated with wartime, uh, wartime sources, well, that was kind of eye-opening to me. Um, and so I did go about it carefully, and uh, there were some sources I just outrightly discarded and didn't even look at um, or didn't look much at. And then there were some that surprised me. Uh, with how well grounded they actually were in 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 the wartime accounts, so it's a judgment call in the end, and you have to just do it. You have to think hard about it. You can't write about this topic, Jerry, 
just off the street. You have to spend a lot of time thinking, a lot of time reading, and immersing yourself in all these sources. And that's why I think that Lee and Jackson are very hard to approach for a lot of people today uh, as historians. I think it's 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 that combined with some of the the public odium that has recently surrounded them. Well, it, I see an analogy with what uh, Michael Burlingame started to do back in the 1990s with the historical evidence about Lincoln uh, that that William Herndon had compiled uh, in his lifetime. And Herndon was Lincoln's partner, and everybody said, well, well, James Randall and others all said, well, Herndon can't be trusted. And mm. it was Burlingame who, who rehabilitated that evidence and showed some of it could be triangulated, and now it's become an extremely important source in Lincoln studies sure. uh, some 30 years later. And it seems like you're doing the same here. Uh, it's an important forward step. Let me ask you about um, – you mentioned theory uh, earlier, and one of your, your – you mentioned there are four theses in the book. One of them is you describe Stonewall Jackson as a strategic-level leader, not just – a battlefield commander. We all know what he did at uh, Chancellorsville, of course, uh, and other battles. But you argue that even though Lee is the commander of the army and Davis the president of the country, that Jackson should be thought of as a, a strategic level leader. So maybe the way to start is, is what do we mean by strategic level? What, what, what are these levels that you, that you evaluate them in? Right. That's another good question, Jerry. So, again, in the introduction, I lay out the levels of war as we understand them at the Army War College, and I make a case for the reality that regardless of time or place, those levels of war existed. And the question is, uh, how did the individuals in the particular historical context, in this case Lee and Jackson and, and their cohort, uh, how did they uh, look at war, and how did they they see it? And as long as you don't uh, lift them out of their historical context and try to force them into a modern theory, I think you're you're on good ground and you're solid. So what I tried to do is explain the various levels of war and the levels of leadership that correspond with them. And I remind the readers throughout the pages of the book uh, what they read in the introduction uh, to kind of start out here. Jackson is is a strategic level leader because he's thinking about how to win the war. So did Robert E. Lee. Uh, and of course, so did Jefferson Davis. The strategic level of war then as today regards uh, the, um, the level that, that engages the enemy in uh, decisive war winning or war losing propositions. It does not necessarily have to be a military uh, decision or a military event that we're talking about. It could be diplomatic, it could be economic, and it may take a long time for the event or the decision to unfold uh, and for the, the final effect to be, to be felt. But when you're talking strategic level, this, is, this regards the actual course of the war. Uh, then below that, you have the theater strategic, and that might be a little more familiar to the listeners, uh, that has to do with the various theaters of war. Uh, we have them today, and they existed in the Civil War, of course, the eastern, the western, the trans-Mississippi. Uh, and that is also considered a strategic level, though it's at a slightly lower level than, than you know, other levels of strategy. And I could go into detail on the, the levels of strategy itself. There are actually many levels within the strategic level. But uh, theater strategy, writ large, is below national strategy. And Jackson and Lee also dwelt in, in that level. 
Now, Jackson did not operate at that level, as you've correctly noted, uh, and, and never really got the chance because he was uh, sent, uh, he was called east to assist Lee uh, in the seven days. Uh, but he was thinking at the strategic level, which is something that a few other authors before me have noted, but they didn't call it what it was. They didn't uh, pin the tail on the donkey, as it were. They said, yeah, he's thinking about going into Pennsylvania, uh, and he wants to wreak havoc up there. But they didn't identify that for what it actually was, which was actually strategic-level thinking, because it would have dealt uh, very heavy blows to the northern ability to prosecute the war. Uh, what he particularly wanted to do uh, was not only wreck railroads in Pennsylvania that connected uh, the, the eastern and western theaters and mess up the Union transportation networks as much as he could, but he also wanted to burn out coal mines east of the Susquehanna River, upon which the North relied for a very high percentage, about three-quarters of its coal. Uh, that's strategic-level thinking because it looks at national-level means to fuel a war. And in the 1860s, coal was king, uh, and uh, for moving armies at least, and, and steamships. And so Jackson is thinking at the strategic level just with that. And then he also is writing to congressmen and suggesting uh, things that frankly, I think, were precursors to the Confederate draft. I found some of those letters that had not been previously uh, looked at down at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and it's very interesting, the similarities to uh, uh, Jackson's thinking and, and what was actually passed by the Confederate le legislature as the first national draft in American history. Uh, so there's my, my, my first answer there. Lee, of course, is thinking at the strategic level almost immediately as, as Jefferson Davis's uh, principal advisor. Uh, and when he becomes commander of the Army Northern Virginia, he has to wear several hats. So he's wearing still, in a de facto sense, the chief advisor hat for Davis. But he's also uh, a theater commander, and he's also an Army commander. So he's got a lot of pressure on, on him, uh, which I think is often forgotten uh, by modern students. And he necessarily has to think at the strategic, but always had to dip down into the tactical. And we know this frustrated him. He, he wanted to do more at, at the higher levels because that would be what wins the war. And I think the, the idea of the movements north uh, that culminated at Sharpsburg and later at Gettysburg uh, show this. He knew that if he was going to have a shot at winning the war in the east, uh, they had to hit the northern will to fight so hard by a crushing military victory and it was best achieved in the North, uh, rather than another defensive victory in the South, mainly for the effect it was going to have on the Northern people. Um, so Lee is clearly thinking at this level, too. And one of the big points I make in the book, Jerry, is that uh, Lee and Jackson complemented each other in how they thought at the strategic level. Uh, and, of course, we already know they complemented each other at the campaign or the operational level of war, and that's very well substantiated in the literature. But what became apparent to me in the course of my research is that these two men actually are thinking very similar thoughts about how to win the war for the Confederacy in the Eastern Theater, hopefully compensating from a Confederate perspective the losses in the West. Um, there were some differences, as I point out in the book. Jackson wanted to bring the hard war a little bit more into the North than Lee did. Lee was a little more reserved in that regard. But uh, it struck me just how close their thinking was. Uh, so... There you go. What? Now, you pushing that further, you argue that Lee and Jackson 
planned the what would be the Pennsylvania campaign, the Gettysburg campaign, in the winter of, of uh, 1862, 63, and in early 1863. You acknowledge there's no smoking gun uh, in, in terms right. of sources, but but you you find an implication there. Uh, just a couple minutes before our next break, but uh, short version. How how do you support that contention? Well, there is so much smoke, as I actually write in that chapter, that there must have been a smoking gun at some point. Anybody that has done detective work or really seasoned archival research historically, they'll understand the frustration where you find so much material. Of course, some of it is secondary, but it's written by original participants. And so much of this material, and it doesn't just nail what you were hoping you might find. So you can't come out and say, well, this is the evidence, because it isn't. it's the smoke that goes around the evidence. Where there is smoke, there's probably a fire. And I found so much uh, secondary evidence uh, about how the two men were thinking similarly, similarly about what to do in the spring. Uh, of 1863, that, and also the proximity that they had in the camps and uh, the timing of uh, the conferences that Lee had in Richmond, uh, the ordering of the map of Pennsylvania uh, by Jackson to, uh, to Hotchkiss, and there are other uh, letters, too, that, that, and, and uh, eyewitness uh, accounts left in diaries and letters, make, us pretty, make it pretty clear, at least in my opinion, that the two were planning this together. Uh, so yes, there's no smoking gun, but it's it's pretty smoky. <laughs> it, it's it, well, it's a convincing picture and an interesting uh, argument, and certainly one that, uh, in the context of the book, is quite persuasive. Let's take another short break. Talk more about the uh, this book, which I must say is a, a delightful book to read. It was it was uh, truly entertaining as well as uh, provocative and and uh, insightful. The book is called The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. The author is Christian B. Keller. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Attention! If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited! Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Christian B. Keller, author of The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy, for a book that appears to be about as traditional a topic as you can imagine in Civil War scholarship, uh, an old-fashioned topic. Uh, don't be fooled, listeners. It is, uh, as you heard in the first two segments, uh, filled with fascinating applications of modern military theory, uh, new ideas, uh, new looks at old evidence, uh, a healthy skepticism for the lost cause. Uh, it's really an interesting book. Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you about, uh, we were just talking about Stonewall Jackson as a strategic leader, even though he doesn't command a strategic level force, he doesn't command a theater or, or an independent army, but you say he, he serves as uh, Lee's strategic advisor. The two of them can share ideas. Lee is, is uh, Jackson's superior, and I know I'm happy to share ideas about the future of ECU with our chancellor here. Uh, uh, and actually, the interim chancellor is someone I know well and would be happy to talk to me. But the previous chancellor would not have given me the time of day, um, and I wouldn't have the uh, the, the rank what I'm saying is, is one guy's a boss, one guy's a subordinate. How can they be partners? Great question. And and uh, I like your illustration from academia, Jerry. Uh, definitely <laughs> can understand that. So uh, the idea of, of partnership here does not preclude the differences in rank. And uh, just because one's the Army commander and the other is a Corps commander, uh, which Jackson uh, would be promoted to after the Sharpsburg campaign, along with James Longstreet. That doesn't mean that the, the two cannot share ideas and converse freely. And in fact, one of my major points is that the professional relationship was so strong because of this free flow of ideas that Lee permitted. Lee could have shut it down. There are mm-hmm. other Civil War commanders who didn't want to hear uh, the viewpoints of their subordinates. Uh, Braxton Bragg is one that comes to mind. Um, At least he didn't hear it willingly. Lee was open to this kind of thinking from Jackson, and we could debate whether he was with Longstreet. Uh, But definitely with Jackson, the historical record is is replete with uh, many different instances of of Lee listening to what Jackson had to say. And in letters uh, that survived that Jackson wrote himself, he indicated the same thing, as did many of his staff officers, that Lee was receptive 
So obviously the two were able to talk freely with each other without fear of recrimination. Jackson was respectful of Lee's rank. He never uh, overstepped that line and knew how far he could push Lee, and then he would stop. Uh, that is a little bit at odds with how James Longstreet uh, would behave uh, later with Lee after Jackson's death. And we maybe don't need to get into that right now, but uh, Jackson was respectful. Lee appreciated that. What really helped them, Jerry, I think, have this partnership and this free flow of ideas, which was such a, a, an important asset for the Army mm-hmm. Northern Virginia's uh, command and control, was the fact that there was a friendship that underlay it all, and they could trust each other. And that trust, in many ways, I argue in the book, was uh, born of a very similar religious conviction. Uh, they were both uh, providentialists uh, in the Christian faith, and though they came at their faith from different denominational perspectives, they essentially looked at their Christianity in uh, the same way. Jackson a little more on the extreme side than Lee, but the evidence is there. Uh, the two thought pretty much the same way about God and about his will on earth and about why and how things happened. Uh, and that glue, uh, I make the case, was very significant for their friendship, which then uh, created the trust that allowed their professional relationship to be so productive, and, and hence the ability of a partnership to to emerge. I, I think that's one of the strong points of the book, because uh, we read about Jackson's Christianity, or Lee, as a, a great Christian in the uh, the source materials and the the staff officers and so on who praise these men for their their great uh, piousness, and historians tend to dismiss that as part of the lost cause uh, uh, propaganda. You take the religious aspect quite seriously and look. Uh, you you point out some of the subtle differences in their theology, but I thought uh, the attention paid to it is is worth doing. That uh, don't throw the, throw the baby out with the bathwater just because the uh, the lost cause uh, view praises them for their Christianity doesn't mean we should ignore the fact that they did in fact have these views and they did have historical significance and that's what you uh, seems to me argue uh, now I, I let me throw this out uh, you make a point uh, that Lee became closer to Jackson's hard war view uh, especially after the loss of uh, his home at Arlington. Uh, and other home at White House on the peninsula. And I have to admit my emotional reaction to reading of Lee becoming radicalized by this loss of Arlington to uh, to the United States was to say, uh, you know, boo-hoo, uh, the house built by the sweat of other men's brows, but you got to live in it. <laughs> Sorry, you're not enjoying the Lord's justice today. Um, it didn't, uh, I'm not sure that was the intent of that, uh, but it, it, there is that element, I guess, the, op, the opposite side of the lost cause view. Uh, Lee and Jackson are great men for being Christian. Um, their, their piousness contrasts with the fact that they're fighting for what Grant called one of the worst causes uh, men ever fought for. Well, yes, and this is a very interesting dichotomy. I, if, if you look at the realities of, of what they're fighting for at, at its root uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what, they, what they believed uh, in, in, in a Christian sense, there's clearly irreconcilable differences there. 
mm-hmm. uh, which I lay out clearly in the book. Um, yes. And uh, to take it even further, you, you have the, the issue of uh, Jackson's very strong Christian faith, uh, but he doesn't seem to have a problem with uh, the, the killing of, of, of enemy soldiers and, and his proposed plundering of northern civilians and burning down of things if he could get into the north. He, he saw no uh, dichotomy there, no problem with his own faith, uh, and particularly you know what the New Testament says. And I think Lee had a little bit more reticence about this, but as as you correctly note, um, you know I try, I try to trace the radicalization of Robert E. Lee. Elizabeth Brown Pryor was the first to kind of bring this up uh, in a mm-hmm. real sense, in a modern way, and uh, I think she was right on the money. I think Lee got more and more bitter uh, as the war went on and you know, I would just remind listeners that it you know it's easy to judge uh, people of the past from the comfort of our own chairs and in our own shoes but mm-hmm. we need to try to get into their context and walk in their shoes a little bit and as as much as uh, uh, the, the cause for which the, the confederacy fought might be repugnant to many today um, there was at the time, a belief in, in, especially held by these leaders that I study, and, and I'm not going to speak mm-hmm. for other ones, but particularly for Lee and Jackson, they they did not see any contradiction, uh, and uh, they could because they suffered, particularly Lee suffered losses, property losses. They could get indignant over that and upset about it, and it's just mm-hmm. a human emotion. It's I think any of us would have a similar reaction if our property was destroyed or, or taken away or, or plundered. There'd be some sort of indignance or emotional response to it. So sure. I, I would ask people to try to look at this from the context uh, of the 1860s as much as possible, uh, because mm-hmm. then the real value, I think, of knowing the history comes out and thinking about well, why did these men think and do what they did? Let me jump to another topic, and I have another dozen important and interesting questions I'd love to ask tonight, and we have time really for one more, Uh, but it's a huge one, uh, of course, and you spend a large part of the book on it. Jackson's death, uh, its impact on the the fate of the Confederacy, specifically, uh, you essentially endorse the idea that... uh, uh, Gettysburg would have been very different had Jackson been there. And, and you started tonight talking about the, the smart aleck response. You got to that question. Um, so let me ask you that question uh, in, in, in a four-minute version. Uh, how, how specifically is the, is the campaign different after if Jackson survives Chancellorsville? Okay. Well, as I lay out in the last chapter, Jerry, uh, the first thing I would like to say is that there's a strong likelihood that the battle isn't even fought at Gettysburg. The campaign takes on a totally different character if Jackson survives. Um, I, I think that Lee would have still expanded to three corps, uh, which I write in the book. Uh, Jackson would have had one of them, I think. Uh, and uh, even if he had not fully recovered enough, I, I, I also put this caveat in there, say he's not recovered well enough and had managed to mm-hmm. survive the amputation of his arm and recovered from the pneumonia and so forth. So let's say he doesn't come with Lee into the North. He would have still been with Lee in the planning of it. I find it highly unlikely in either scenario where he lives and accompanies Lee as a Corps commander or uh, he advises Lee up to the moment of, of, of Lee leaving. I find it highly unlikely that Stuart would have been permitted to go uh, on what became his wild ride. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the big reason for that is Jackson and Stewart were just as close as Lee and Jackson were, probably even closer. Uh, Stewart said of Jackson, he's the best friend uh, that I've ever had, uh, and, and mourned his loss as deeply as Lee did. Um, particularly if, if, if the hypothetical of Jackson surviving uh, is taken to the point where he, he goes north with Lee, I, I really do not think at all that Stuart would have uh, left the main army and, uh, and done what he historically did. I think he would have escorted Jackson's corps in, which is what he had done in all the previous campaigns uh, that uh, Jackson had participated in. Uh, and that would have changed the whole character of the campaign. And beyond that... Uh, it, it gets speculative. Um, I also deal with Longstreet and what his role would have been if Jackson had survived. Uh, not so much if Jackson had survived, but what did it mean that he died? Uh, because Jackson mm-hmm. died, Longstreet is elevated in his own mind and in Lee's as the new the new number one, which he had occupied before Jackson, uh, listeners may remember, mm-hmm. uh, before Jackson had kind of usurped him for a moment. And uh, I think that uh, Longstreet's behavior in this campaign would have necessarily been altered as well uh, if Jackson had had lived. Uh, But certainly because Jackson did not live, Longstreet is going to have certain uh, proclivities and or uh, certain behavior patterns that that, uh, might not have otherwise occurred. So, you know, I'm not one who blames Longstreet or Yule for the loss at Gettysburg, but I definitely would say that the Jackson, uh, the death of Jackson, created so many secondary and, and tertiary effects uh, that the campaign was automatically going to be a difficult one for Robert E. Lee, uh, whereas if, if uh, Stonewall had lived, this would have been a very different situation. One of those effects that you talk about is the effect uh, on Lee himself. You point out he was emotionally wounded, uh, and this is the flip side of having a great partnership. Uh, you, you make an argument in this book for the importance of leaders at any level, not just in the Civil War, but in organizations today, uh, in having uh, uh, good advisors, partners, friends, uh, people in the organization who can speak freely to them and they can uh, trust and rely on. And if there's a common bond, and the, the, the case you write about here, it's religion, but it could be other things. Uh, but whatever it is, uh, the flip side of having such a great partnership is if one of those partners is killed in battle or in the modern world retires or transferred or otherwise leaves your organization, uh, you're almost worse off than before. Right. And um, we experience this uh, yet today in our armed forces. Now, we try very hard, and uh, listeners may be very well aware that you know, we do train our subordinates to assume positions of higher responsibility uh, at a moment's notice. But then as today, it's difficult and a seasoning time is necessary for that newly ascended leader to get used to their new position. And uh, I think for for Lee, uh, he was not used to his two new immediate subordinates, Ewell and Hill, and mm-hmm. they weren't used to him because of the differences uh, in command style. Both of uh, those those two other gentlemen had served under Jackson, who gave very punctilious orders uh, directly. And Lee, of course, was a mission command uh, intent-based order giver. Neither Lee nor his two new corps commanders had enough time to adjust, I argue, uh, to the new realities that Jackson's death left them with. 
i.e. that uh, both of them had to change. Both of them had to adapt, uh, both sides of of this, and uh, neither really were able to do so. And circling back to the beginning of the book, you make the same case in the seven days that Jackson hasn't yet learned Lee's style, and not till the second Manassas campaign does Lee learn a new style that works better with Jackson. Uh, But in the Gettysburg campaign, there's no time for that. And we have no time, unfortunately, to go any further into this book. Uh, But I found it, uh, again, a a fascinating book, really uh, one that each chapter had something I didn't expect coming up. Uh, and, And often I'll read a book and think, well, I can skim the rest. I know where he's going, where she's going uh, with with this topic. And that wasn't the case here. There was always something uh, uh, stimulating in every chapter. So listeners, you will want to get a copy of The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy by Christian B. Keller, who has been our guest tonight. Chris, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Truly my pleasure, Jerry. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.